0: Talking history. This is news talk.
1: We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never
2: surrender.
0: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The
3: strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. one
2: small step for man, one giant
0: leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus, Akoya.
2: Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Irish wakes and we'll be exploring Irish beliefs and practices about death over the centuries. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored the life and legacy of Catherine Mansfield, the New Zealand born modernist writer whose haunting and powerful works helped redefine the modern short story. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of the Irish Wake, with tonight's show inspired by the new Irish Wake Museum at Waterford Treasures, the only dedicated museum quarter in Ireland. It opens on Friday, and if you want to find out details, just go to their brilliant website, www.waterfordtreasures.com. Com. The Irish wake is perhaps one of the best-known funeral traditions associated with Ireland. The wake, the glorious send-off of departed loved ones, is a prominent feature of Irish funeral traditions, but is seen less and less often in modern Ireland and is now almost unknown in the cities. But in many country areas, the practice of watching over the recently deceased from the time of death to burial is still followed and it is an important part of the grieving process, which is why many Irish funerals outside of the cities are... Are still preceded by a wake. Irish wakes are a show of strength in the community, coming together to help a family grieve. And this one of a kind museum in Waterford transports you back to the original almshouses in Cathedral Square of Waterford City and takes you through a sensitively curated, fully guided tour. Of an Irish Wake. And to talk to me about Ireland's newest addition to the museum scene, the Irish Wake Museum, I'm delighted to be joined by Eamon Macanini, the director of Waterford Treasures Museum, who's published many books and articles on the history of Waterford. Awarded the Merit of Honour by the King of Norway, he'll retire at the end of this month after 32 years of service and following the opening of the Irish Wake Museum. Rosemary Ryan is a curator at Waterford Treasures Museum and has been an integral part of the museum since the nineteen nineties. She's the co-author with Eamon Macanini of Waterford Treasures, a guide to the historic and archaeological treasures of Waterford City, and she curates exhibitions and overseas events within the Waterford Treasures that reflect the city's rich history. Joining us for the first part of the show, we're delighted to welcome Donica O'Calicon, curator at Waterford Treasures Museum, who's published on various aspects of the history of Waterford City and country over the centuries and he's an expert particularly on the 19th and 20th centuries. Well you're all very welcome and later in the show I'll be joined by John Thompson of Thompson Funeral Homes established in Waterford in 1786 who's the former president and founder of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors. Eamon, can you tell me what was the inspiration for it?
3: Uh, the main inspiration for, for the museum was the fact that um, we have one of the oldest cadaver tombs in Ireland and one of the finest of a man called James Rice, 11 times mayor of the city, back in the in the 15th century. And um, he was the, he was one of the co-founders of the Ams House, uh, together with the dean, who was actually the main founder. And interestingly, he was the man who founded the, the Ams House on the 2nd of November in 1478.
2: And it's a way of, you know, I suppose, commemorating, remembering our experiences with death and with remembering uh, those who have died. Because the Irish wake, it is, it is, or it certainly was for such a long time, an integral part of the Irish mourning experience.
3: That, that, that's correct, yeah. We, we've kind of, in an audiovisual, first, we've traced the various customs going back to the Stone Age. And in the first audiovisual, that's, and that goes right up to the 20th century. And then the six rooms of the House, we, we look at death um, traditions and customs through different centuries, from the 15th century, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and then 20th. And we end on a high note. Um, essentially, uh, funerals and, and wakes are all about commemorating the dead, celebrating their life. But also, there are a time for us all to reflect on our own mortality, so at the very end, then we, we end on a really positive note of, you know, start to live life and do the things you want to do. And don't be worrying about what people think about you or anything else, but go out there and live life and cherish every day you have.
2: Very good. Now, Donica, I know you can only join us for the first part of tonight's show. So I'll, I'll do some quick fire questions to you and maybe a question about some of the interesting characters that we have associated with this. Uh, can you tell us about Great Rakes.
1: Yeah, interesting character, Valentine Greatrakes. He was born in a fan in West Waterford, actually near the valley of the Blackwater, 1628, and he was a healer. And um, I suppose if we look at his career, you know, and his idea, he healed by laying hands on people. And um, now, the Greatrakes family, there were a family of Protestant settlers who would sort of introduced into the Valley of the Blackwater, um, very much associated with the Boyle family. Of course, the Earls of Cork, Richard Boyle uh, was the first earl. And um, Valentine would have been a contemporary almost of Robert Boyle, the very famous Robert Boyle, one of the sons of the first earl, the famous uh, scientist and chemist. In the turbulent years of the 1640s, Valentine Great Lakes was about 13 and The family were driven out, really, you know, same as many other Protestant families right across the country. They took refuge in England. He returned then as part of the Cromwellian army, actually, in the 1640s and served under Lord Broghill, another Boyle, Roger Boyle, who later became Earl of Orrery. I suppose you could say his Puritan, Protestant, Cromwellian sort of credentials were well-established. But I suppose in the, famous, in the biography of him by Elmer, published recently, he's described as a great conformist, and um, he was a great survivor, like the Boyles themselves, you know, and um, is his very first um, attempt at curing somebody was in 1661. Now this is just after after the um, the Restoration, and he healed somebody called a young boy called William Maher. Of Capoquin in County Waterford, he was suffering from scrofula, which is sort of known as the king's evil. Traditionally, it was believed that this could be cured by a monarch, especially in Britain and Ireland. You know, the idea was that they say the monarchy or the monarch, divinely appointed, um, inspired by God or picked by God to rule over his or her subjects, had the power, you know, the power of the healing hands of the monarch was very. Sort of common theme going right back to the medieval period. So when he did this, it seemed almost as if it was again a a direct challenge to the notion, you know, the superstitious idea that it was only the king could uh, cure this. His fame as a healer spread after this. Moved to Yale in County Cork, attracted vast crowds. I said he was a contemporary of Robert Boyle, you know, the great scientist, the father of chemistry. And um, in a way, to a certain extent, you can see there was a little bit of, um, you could say, a little bit of division here between, say, scientific um, medical practitioners and the idea of being able to cure somebody by putting hands on them or laying their hands. So I suppose the conflict was between, say, the superstition of the Middle Ages by laying hands and modern medicine and um, great rigs. He didn't charge for his services, cured free of charge. I suppose this was an estimate to many in med- the medical profession who were selling at the time the expensive, useless medicines, which I suppose like the famous pills and potions. This was, I suppose, something that caused, you know, a little bit of conflict at the time, like, you know, the psychophony between,
2: say, superstition and pure science. And indeed, these are some of the aspects that are explored in the museum. And what what's your favourite aspect of the museum, and what I suppose uh, interested you the most, putting the bits together and uh, the various objects, so that you could tell the story of death and the Irish wake.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose again, one of the most, one of my favourite objects of the whole thing is, believe it or not, it's actually a bleeding bowl, a bleeding bowl, which was um, it's made of silver, and it was. Um, Bleeding, of course, continued to be in use right through the medieval period up to the 18th century as a cure for many ills and many evils, you know. And we have a portal here as well on display in the museum of a very famous medical practitioner here in the city who was actually an apothecary, a Dr. William Mackesy. Quite quite a, a famous medical family, but he was affectionately known to the people of Waterford as Billy the Bleeder. No matter what was wrong with you, bleeding was the answer. Not sure if we trust him today. So I think that's a fantastic story, like, you know, the notion that uh, stopping stop and cure was the, ble- the bleeding and the lance of the scalpel.
2: And you also get a great insight into, I suppose, how attitudes and views of death changed in the 19th and the 20th centuries.
1: Very much so. Like, you know, things are moving on. Like, you know, one of the themes we explore here in the museum, you know, the idea of how... The, um, the attitudes towards death changed over centuries, especially with introductions say, of the Reformation, you know different burial practices uh, influenced by religion. And of course, the idea of the wake going right back you know to perhaps pagan times is a common idea, that a time of death, sort of normal rules and, uh, that apply to society sort of go out the window for a certain period of time. And then we're looking here, I suppose, as well, at you could say, perhaps, in the Victorianisation of the wake, how things became respectable. The traditional view, say, for example, in the west of Ireland, where wakes, sometimes could be raucous, merry occasions, believe it or not, all that began to change, of course.
2: Brilliant. And Rosemary, can we talk first maybe a little bit about the Waterford Treasures Museums in general? You know, the fact that uh, there is this dedicated space to all these different museums that tell different parts of the story of Ireland.
0: Yes, we have many wonderful museums now. We have a Viking virtual reality adventure and we curate the exhibition in Reginald's Tower. Then we have the award-winning medieval museum. We have the Bishop's Palace, which tells the story of the 18th and 19th century and goes into the 20th century. Um, In the top floor of the Bishop's Palace, we have the Irish Silver Museum and the Irish Museum of Time since 2021 and now we're opening the Wake Museum which is like the Viking Adventure. It's a tiny um, a building which will take a very small number of people at a time so you have this very bijou experience and, and a wonderful guided tour.
2: And how exciting was it to put together uh, the different objects for the, the, the museum and to decide what would go in and maybe what wouldn't go in?
0: Well obviously it has a strong theme and that dictated um so it has been very very interesting to um acquire over the last few years um a very focused group of a collection of objects uh, which are death related um I can tell you some detail about them if you like
2: Oh no absolutely because for example like some of the objects uh, uh for example like you have diaries uh, relating collections yes. of poems uh, like you get an yes. insight into the people as well as uh, as, as well as as the practices
0: Yes. I mean, as always, you know, objects are a very, very vivid and immediate window into people's lives, whether it's the Bronze Age funerary urn, you know, which is about 4000 years old and which contained the cremated remains of of one of our ancestors to the 18th century mourning jewellery, which was you know, um, very precious possessions of, um, for example, we have a collection of mourning jewellery of the um, a family, the Bly Brownlow family of County Mead, who had seven children, three of whom died young. So as well as the um, 10 other beautiful objects containing locks of hair of the children, the most poignant object is the, the little cross which um has um on one side little locks of hair of all of her seven children and on the other side then it has the details of their birth and death dates, three of whom died young, as I say. And um, We have other wonderful objects. You know, we have some Viking and uh, early medieval shroud pins from St Peter's churchyard, graveyard here in Waterford City, which were found in the archaeological excavations. And we have um, probably the oldest death mask in Ireland of Father Luke Wadding, um made in Rome when he went, obviously on his death, um the wonderful Father Luke Wadding. And we have um the uh, gold chalice which inspired him. It belonged to a Franciscan priest called Father John Lucre and it inspired Luke Wadding to become a Franciscan priest because when Father Luke uh, Father John Lucre was um exhumed for reburial, the young um Luke Wadding um, was The body of Father Lucre had not um, rotted and the sandals and robe were all intact. And this inspired Luke Wadding to become a Franciscan, and he wrote about that in later life. And um, We have, as you say, um, in the 18th century, um, for 18th century, um, we have, as well as the morning jewellery, Donica mentioned the bleeding bowl, um, we have apothecaries, uh, glass bottles and mortars, actually summer um uh, 11th and 12th century again found in the archaeological excavations we have medieval mortars and we have a wonderful bronze mortar of an apothecary here in the city probably a catholic dated 1707 a man called michael Tonnery um, who lived to a great age 112 we is it is said therefore you know it's it's like a relic for every for all of us to touch and lived lived to a, a ripe old age and you mentioned the um the books of um poems. we have two extraordinary um diaries. One is a diary of the Dobbin family over three generations and they one of the margaret dobbin she records the the death uh, as infants of two of her little children, one from inoc from inoculation. She says that the child was inhumanely treated by the doctor and then we also have the um poems. From 1784, of Elizabeth Penrose, wife of the founder of the Glassworks. So, they're very, that that is a really, really vivid, vivid window into that lady's life. And she has a poem on, they were Quakers, and uh, she has a poem on the death of her infant who lived 11 days. Um, Extraordinarily potent and powerful objects.
2: And Eamon, when you were thinking about the inspiration for this, Did you think that it was something that would appeal to Irish audiences, but also international audiences, who would be fascinated to hear about Irish death practices over the centuries?
3: Yes, Patrick, we we have indeed. The Irish wake, of course, is kind of an an iconic part of our intangible heritage. And I think every person that knows anything about Ireland will will know about the Irish wake. And of course, there's the, the famous American wake that they had around the time of the famine when, the night before people boarded the ship to go across uh, to, to the United States or Canada, um, because, of course, they couldn't fi- find the resources to live here in, in Ireland. So I, I think it's something that's very much part of of the people who've left Ireland and they remember the wake and it, the stories about Irish wakes, of course, would have been passed on from generation to generation to people living
2: abroad. And maybe, Eamon, you could talk us through the six different rooms. To tell us what we'll find in each of them.
3: Well, in, in the first room, we look at the founders, the two founders, the mayor and the and the dean. And we have uh, the, the mortars belong to the vestments that the dean bought for his Chantry Chapel. And the Chantry Chapel was what he built to have priests say prayers he thought for eternity for his soul. And James Rice also did, uh, had a Chantry Chapel built. We also have a 13th century tile from the medieval cathedral. And the cathedral was demolished in the 18th century. But James Rice passed a law in, in the council. He was his mayor for 11 times. And he said that people can start digging up the floor of the cathedral so that they'd be buried in the cathedral. They weren't removed tiles, that was the actual wording of it. And of course, everybody wants to be buried in the cathedral and as near as possible to the altar so that your, the prayers for your soul would get quicker. To heaven and get you out of purgatory. So, the, and we have a wonderful um, processional cross there from the from the 15th century. Also, it's a it's a really remarkable cross. It would have been carried before uh, a hearse. Um, and w- one of the really iconic pieces. It's a, it's a land deed, but it's like a it will. We won't call it a will. De- we can't specifically call it a will. But what's really interesting is that it dates to 1374. I think it's unique in Ireland. It's. It's a transfer of land to a famous Waterford family. They were only a regular family at this stage in their career. And they were transferring land in 1374, it's a few years after the Black Death first struck. It, it struck again in 1374. And they were so terrified that everybody in their family would die um, before the land was transferred or why the land was being transferred that they wrote the names of 25 male members of the Wise family at the end of the document And should all of the others meet their demise because of the black Death, then it could fall to to a female. But they they, they listed 25 males first, so that's a very important object. In in the next room, then we're we're looking at the the whole idea of of the plague. And we talk about the fact that Watford has one of the earliest records of plague victims around the same time as they were writing down the numbers in, in London uh, we here in Waterford have a famous book called The Great Parchment Book. And in that in that room we're looking at uh Luke Wadding and the reinterment that Rosemary spoke about of of Father Lucre and how Luke Wadding was at that. So so each has a sub theme, like the first sub theme is Purgatory, the second sub theme is is the Reformation and how the Reformation didn't really succeed in Ireland. And although Catholics were were bound to be buried in what were uh, then deemed Protestant graveyards, how some people try to avoid that, and how Catholics for really for over half a century, or nearly 70 years, almost totally ignored the prohibition on saying Mass and laying flowers at the graves of, of their, their their deceased family members and lighting candles at them. So it's it's a really good insight into attitudes at the time. Then when you go up to the room where we deal with the apothecaries and all, all of that, we, we're, we look there at um, how, of course, the, the Protestant reformers managed to gain control of the country and how, despite all this and despite all their ideas of being modern and being uh, unsuperstitious, as they accused the Catholics of being, they were equally, of course, superstitious. They, they feared death, like everybody. And of course, you could be dragged away by by death by the slightest ailment, and that's why we deal with ailments and uh, healers, as, as as Donica spoke about, and uh, leaders and people like that. And we also deal there with a Roman Catholic, a famous Watford man, famous Wise family, descendants of those people who who had the land back in the in the fourteenth century and how they managed to escape being buried in Protestant graveyards by, by finding their own tomb, and we actually building their own, their own vaults. We actually have a photograph of the, the, the partially decomposed bodies from that vault. Uh, it's an 18th-century vault, so it's, it's very interesting, um, that, that part. And then we move on to the 18th century. And the interesting thing about the 18th century is, Rome, is that we deal with child mortality... And the character we deal with there is Mrs. Roberts, the wife of the architect who who built the great cathedral outside the door, demolished the medieval cathedral. And she had 22 children. And interestingly, the architect lived in the house next to the almshouse, but the almshouse was closed by the 18th century, and the family took it over. And they expanded into it and we found the doors, the doorways where they expanded. They were later locked up, but, but we, we discovered those. And so the family lived in the Amps House. And we used Mrs. Roberts then as the person to tell the story about children, uh, infant mortality. She, of course, lost. Um, uh, she had 22 children and only eight lived to adulthood. And that's where we have the mourning jewelry. And then in the 19th century... We go up and we look at wakes and traditions to do with, you know, everybody was given, of course, a pipe and you had to smoke or whether you smoked or not, you're expected to take a puff of a pipe. And one of the big things you had to have in for the wake, apart from drink, of course, whiskey and beer, you had to have tobacco and pipes. We have lovely snuff boxes and we've got relics and rosary beads and uh, all, all those things that we typically associated with, with the death call boxes uh, uh, with the with, um, with wake and we have uh, a corpse in the bed of course and everything like that and then lurking in the background of all this is Queen Victoria in, in, a, in a mourning costume which is actually belonged to the Queen and basically what we're trying to say is that in the 19th century then uh, firstly the 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 fact that you get uh, more Victorian ideas coming into Ireland you get a conservative church all the priests were now educated at Minoots so you're getting a much more conservative and the rowdy wakes of the of the 19, early 19th century and 18th century are now dying out and people are publishing death notices in newspapers and it's so all becoming very much more civilised uh, it, it kind of then ends on the 20th century with a more optimistic look but we still remember that you know you did have in, in my youth you still had missionaries going around giving sermons and the women went Different nights from the men, and you had people. Uh, the sermons were about uh, hellfire and brimstone. You know, that you're, you know, you repent for your sins. We still have people to this very day sending mass cards, uh, and it's a very big, big part of the Roman Catholic funerary traditions. Uh, and we're kind to, trying to say that at the very end, that this house was built. To, to say Mass and encourage people to say Mass and to say prayers for the dead. And to this very day, the Roman Catholic community in Ireland still say prayers for the dead. So sometimes we feel we've lost a lot of things, but in many ways we haven't. We've, those traditions still continue. And then we celebrate life at the very end and ask people to out and live life. And while we're all going to die and realise that, but, but you should embrace life and quote and have a good time for yourself.
2: Well, I think that's an excellent point to remind us of as well as we talk about death and how death is remembered. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by John Thompson of Thompson Funeral Homes, who's the founder and former president of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors. And we'll be continuing our discussion based around the opening just last Friday of the new Irish Wake Museum. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we mark the opening of the Irish Wake Museum by talking about Irish death and burial practices over the centuries. I'm delighted to be be joined by Eamon McEnany, the director of Waterford Treasures Museum, Rosemary Ryan, curator at Waterford Treasures Museum, and we're also joined by John Thompson of Thompson Funeral Homes, which was established in Waterford in 1786. And John is a former president, as well as being the founder of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors. Uh, John, I might start back with you. You're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us about your own career uh, with funerals? I know you're retired now, but when you started off when you were a child and you were helping out in the family firm, back in those days, the firm made their own coffins.
4: That's right. We had big um, sawmills during the war. We had a coffin maker. We were next to, next to Mount Stein schools. Um, and during my break from school, I have to come down and polish the coffins with candles, um, as we didn't have much else to, to, to polish them with. Um, we also supplied coffins over into South Wexford, and, and that was my first experience of the, the, the funeral direction. Beyond the fact that my father was always able to disappear, be it Christmas Day or any day when he was called by a family.
2: And there were some like traditions back then that you know very much have, have disappeared from from our world now. For example, when someone close in the family died, the radio wasn't switched on for a full six months afterwards.
4: That's right. Yes, the first thing the first thing was radios. You weren't allowed to go to the cinema or dances. Um, you wore the men wore um, a diamond square black on their jacket on on their jacket for about six months. The ladies dressed in black for six months before going back into normal clothes. Also, we were we had a public house as well, so as part of the the, the service, people got drink because they couldn't afford to buy it at the time. As part of the funeral service, and also um, cigarettes and and money if they needed it. In that those days, the all the. Wakes were in houses, of course. There were no such things as funeral homes. The mortuary chapels in the hospitals uh, were fairly, fairly basic. And uh, that, that, that was what the funeral was. When my own grandfather died, for the week after the funeral, his sons and my, my mother gathered and played cards every night for the week uh, as a family gathering to celebrate and mourn the death.
2: And even when the, the coffin went to the church, it didn't go to the front of the church like it does in, uh, uh, in these times. It, it stayed in the, in the mortuary chapel.
4: That's, that's right. It was brought into the mortuary chapel. The said the prayers in the mortuary chapel. Most funerals at that time were if they spent two nights in the church, so they'd be two nights in the mortuary chapel, they would be brought over to the front of the altar for the Mass. And after the Mass would be returned to the mortuary chapel, National would be the, sorry, uh, would be ten o'clock in the morning and that, but the actual funeral then would be in the afternoon, say three o'clock. In most cases, they'd be, they'd be walking away. All funerals walked to the church and walked away from the church, uh, and they'd go to where they were kind of nominated, walking and stopping points, and the family would stop with the the hearse would pass. Then, depending on the family. They would have some cars uh, for family. But people didn't have cars then, and for for neighbours. And part of my father's job then was, he would be expected to know the people who should go in the cars, like uh, be familiar with the family, and know who the family are, and who the friends and relatives would be. Also, when people would travel out in those days, they'd go out to the cemetery. They wouldn't... This the only... P- chance they would get a visit in their own family grave, unless they hired a car to bring them out. Um, They'd go go to a funeral and then the students all disappear up to their own family grave.
2: And John, can you tell us about how you got involved as well? I know it was the family business, but actually, after school, you went off and uh, studied. I think electrical engineering, and worked for was it Waterford Crystal? That it it wasn't like a straight uh, move into working. Or no, sorry, it was the ESB you went working for. But uh, you, and, and then
4: I went. To, I went to the Crystal. Then after. Oh, that, and then yeah.
2: you did went go to yeah. the Crystal. So it wasn't a straightforward move into the family business.
4: No, no. To be honest with you, my father never wanted me to go into the family. It was
2: such a for us And um,
4: there was no, no job to be in. It was a, um, a 24-hour, 24-hour business um, dealing with people, stress, with, with stressful people or people who are stressed all the time. So what happened was he died suddenly. Um, I had a chat with the, 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 the management of the glass factory and they told me that I should continue the business as long as it didn't interfere with my glass factory work which I did. So then my, my my mother, who had never worked after, once she got married, in those days, of course, once you got married, you had to stop work. You had to leave your job and stay at home. Uh, my mother had to come in and help, and my wife also, who um, had absolutely no experience of, of funerals. And uh, then eventually I left. I left the last. After, in the meantime, then I'd studied embalming and... Uh, getting the first embanner in the southeast, and opened the first funeral home in the southeast. which kind of was the way things had gone throughout the country, where funeral homes were, were, were the the way to go, um, and also uh, I did the embanning because the days that the the ladies in the street who would have candles and white sheets and uh, and that and lay out the families, that was kind of hygiene and all the rest of it, that, that disappeared. So uh, that's when the embalming came into it and that changed the the whole, the whole system of to interesting. All the um, the ladies in the street who had white sheets and who would lay out anybody who died in the street, um, well they all sort, kind of got old and nobody was prepared to to, to do it. And in mortuary in the, in the hospitals the day of the the, the um, bodies being treated in on the walls. They had no place in modern kind of nursing, modern medicine. That they the remains were just taken away and for virtually every old body are in ban now.
2: Eamon, one of the things that really struck me reading about the museum and uh, the various stories that are told in the different rooms is just is just how how high the, and appalling the rates were of infant mortality, the number of children who died either uh, in childbirth or soon afterwards. That it it wasn't a particularly uh, safe experience giving birth, and it wasn't a particularly safe time growing up.
3: No, no, indeed it wasn't uh, particularly in the in the 18th century, and, and and right through into the 19th century. I mean, the 18th century, like the 19th century, had a great famine. To say, in fact. The one of the 1740s was, was probably worse than the, what we know as the Great Famine in the 19th century. And they say during the worst years of that in, in the early uh, 1740s, that, that um, about one in three children is all that survived, that were born around that time. And and literally people were dying in in, in, in the fields. They couldn't be buried, according to a curate up in Monaghan. And um, uh, so obviously children, newborns, were, were the ones great, greatest affected. And as we said, um, Mrs. Mrs. Roberts, who would have come from a very wealthy family there, for her husband was a great architect, and who lived next door and occupied the house for a while. Um, eight, of her, eight of her children only survived from 22 that she gave birth to her. So, uh, you know, uh, death of children was a huge thing. We have a lovely little um, silver clamp. It's called for clamping the umbilical cord before it's cut, and interestingly, it's, it's made it beautifully in the shape of a stork. And when you open it up, it, there's a little baby inside the stork's body as a, in swaddling clothes. And the idea was that you you displayed this little stork, uh, silver stork, and it, it let people know you were pregnant. But really, I think people didn't want to talk about it in case everything didn't end successfully and uh, end up with a live birth. But even if you're born alive, the baby was born alive they could still of course die within the next three or four years the first four or five years were probably the most dangerous and that's why we often wonder why population took so long to grow except of course in in the 19th century when when there were different factors uh, uh, increasing the population growth but but generally populations were quite, growth was quite small for two adults to be born, to live, to produce two more, uh, to, to produce adults two adults wasn't wasn't taken for granted i put it that way and and that's why you get so much mourning jewelry that people want to remember the babies that they've lost obviously that was a luxury for the rich but not for the poor
2: and was religion a factor in how people were i suppose the types of experiences that they had in terms of funerals wakes uh, memorials and so on did we see different practices for protestants than we did for catholics
3: we we, we do indeed well the, you know, even the, the tombstones are different. And uh, of course, Catholics. I, I think what happened—the resentment between Catholics and Protestants—lived uh, on through funerals, really, in the sense that uh, all all uh, cemeteries were in control of the Protestant uh, clergy, and therefore you had to pay the Protestant clergy permission to be buried in the, in the Protestant graveyard. But you also had to pay the Roman Catholic clergy to officiate at prayers, which couldn't be had in in the in, in the Protestant graveyard. So that also probably helped the wakes to continue. You know, that the Catholics who didn't have churches really until you come in, well, open churches and are in large numbers of churches until the 19th century, and that, that probably encouraged the wake and encouraged the, the funeral services at, at home and Catholics um, having wakes as, as we traditionally know them. But uh, that there, there were traditions like that. Of course, as we know, the Quakers here, the Quaker Cemetery here in Watford, death is very much the leveller in that all the tombstones are, are all identical. They're all perfect little rows. You see that in Dublin also and other, other Quaker cemeteries. The, the Church of Ireland graves, of course, are totally different from the Catholic ones in that they don't ask for prayers for the dead. So they don't believe in prayers for the dead. And I think one of the most interesting things we have was made in 1704. It's unique. Uh, There's nothing like it in Ireland. It was made by a Protestant silversmith in Dublin. It was for his friend who was a a Protestant silversmith working in Dublin. His wife had died. And to commemorate his wife's death, he did this beautiful plaque. There's a woman sitting in a very lavishly furnished room. She has her head on a skull and there's a little um, hourglass there. And obviously the sands have gone through. And then at the other side of the image is St. Michael the Archangel, we think, or St. George smiting the, uh, the devil who's in the form of kind of a dragon-like figure. And um, basically what they're saying is they're assuming, they're not asking for prayers, they're assuming that the Lady's in heaven, and there's a little plaque on the wall where she asks her husband, why don't you come up and visit me, darling? In other words, why don't you come to heaven? Is implied, but that's an offer. By the way, he declined for a number of years.
2: And Rosemary, that whole idea of infant mortality—it is something that is uh, shown very strongly in the in the museum.
0: Yes, um, it is, and and obviously it's it's a very um, difficult it's a difficult issue, and we've done it respectfully. But it's a reality um, and we do it, we try, we we hope we've done it in a positive way. And um, as eden said, celebrating lives um, and the objects are are, are really, uh, you know, are there, um, including miniatures of of children and young people and and the father and son to remember. We always, we always as a species, I think we just we want to remember um, our, our loved ones. That's what it's about, isn't it?
2: And in terms of the different objects, we get a sense of, you know, changing practices in Ireland as well, in terms of even things like the Dublin Foundling Hospital uh, that was closed in 1830. We get an insight into the history of that as well.
0: Yes. Um, The Dublin diary that I mentioned earlier, actually, um, one of the entries actually records the fact that an infant was um, left on the, um, at their door, of their street, house, of their um, townhouse in the city centre. Um, in in the seventeen in 1737. Um and the it was an abandoned baby and um the, the diary entry says and was sent to Dublin and we presume that baby that infant was sent to the Foundling Hospital in Dublin, which um we record um had absolutely astronomical mortality rates in its in its um, in its time and was shot finally in 1830. So um, we don't shy away from, you know, from the harsh realities of all that. Um, uh, so, um, you know, but we do them, as I said, in a respectful way.
2: And that would have just been a place where, what would have been, it? children abandoned would have been, would have been placed?
0: Yes. I mean, in the 18th century, um, abandoned um, and illegitimate children were placed there. And they were actually um, given out to, to wet nurses, um, who who so that in fact you can't really it wasn't actually within the hospital that that they that they um that they they died. So they were actually given out to, to people who were to women who were paid. The Dublin Foundling Hospital was um founded for humane reasons um and it was for foundlings or abandoned babies, illegitimate babies. Um and uh uh, it it was it actually um put the the babies out to wet nurses to 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 nurse and bring up and um, so it wasn't so it was um obviously exploited by some un, unscrupulous people unfortunately um, and that is one one of the reasons for the um, the horrendous um uh, mortality rate of the, the babies um, um who were admitted um, and there were many inquiries and this was finally shut in the in the 1830s. we also um uh, actually uh, um also Refer to the 1741 Blian on Oireachtas, you know, the 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 year of the slaughter, that 1741 um, famine, which um, uh, proportionately killed a higher percentage of the Irish population than the the Great Famine, um, and uh, you know, the River in Waterford flows over. There were f- food riots in in Dublin, um, and um, uh, you know, it was a time of of horrendous. Um, uh, hardship for, for especially for the poor, and um, so we we relate that in as well. So we don't shy away from these these awful realities, and um, but you know we try to be positive that you know we are we are we hope living in more enlightened times now where there's more compassion.
2: Eamon, when you. Look at the different types of experiences people had and the different kinds of traditions and and and, and methods they had for dealing with uh, grief and loss and death and so on. We kind of see a changing philosophy as well, and perhaps that some developed this idea that it showed the importance of living life to the full it showed the importance of of, of making the most of the time that you were on this planet
3: yeah and that that's just where the the museum kind of ends the last room the museum uh, asks people to do that to, to, to look remember we're all only here for a short time I, th- I think um george bernard shaw captured that beautifully in that quotation we have uh, about him um, that we we all carry a torch and we should make the best of life and that really we're carrying that torch for a short time and we pass it on to the next generation uh, and remember that and and to live and enjoy your life not been worried about what people think about you or, and we, you know, another quote we have there is, dance as if nobody is watching, sing as if nobody is listening, and love as if you've never been hurt. And I think it's a very positive way to go out and just live life, enjoy yourself, and follow your dreams. Um, you don't get a second life. As someone said we, we all think we've got two lives and you really start living life when, when you realise in fact that we've only got one and and you better it's going
2: well indeed that we do have to make the most of, of the life that we do have we'll take a quick break now when we come back we'll explore more about Ireland's newest museum the Irish Wake Museum and what it tells us about our history and indeed our society so stay with us here on News Talk. Well welcome back to Talking History as we explore Ireland's newest museum the Irish Wake Museum which is part of the Waterford Treasures Collective of Museums and uh, delighted to be joined by Eamon McEnany who's the director of Waterford Treasures Museum and and uh, he's going to be retiring now after 32 years of service Rosemary Ryan curator at Waterford Treasures Museum who's been an integral part of the museum since the 1990s Donachy Calicon joins us earlier another curator at Waterford Treasures Museum and we're also joined by John Thompson of Thompson Funeral Homes who's a former president and founder of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors John you've seen that as well the way practices have changed you know you mentioned your grandfather your father's funeral that you know Throughout your experience with the company and going back to your childhood involvement in it, practices have changed a huge amount.
4: Oh, totally. For example, in my first experience when in the business, when I took it over, uh, every funeral went to the church for two nights, stayed overnight for two nights. That then went to one night and it's now possibly um, helped by the COVID thing where most funerals now just go for the mass. And then, and then off uh, for burial, um, you don't have what you call wakes anymore. What you have now is reposing where we advertise with r i p and that um that the family that the uh, remains will be reposing will stay in the funeral home um for a, ser- a few hours the night before the mass, uh, and could also could possibly be taken back to the house then for the pre- for the family to have the bodies there. Privately, before the the mass, the following day, um, we're getting some um, the odd humanist funeral now. Um, as they were saying about the the practices changing.
2: And, of course, now a big feature of it is putting the death notice in RIP.ie. Before that, it was in the newspaper but or perhaps on the radio. But, of course, even going further back, it was often too expensive to put in the newspaper. Well, that's...
4: I mean, Eve, uh, we don't want to insult the newspapers, but, I mean, it still is not uh, expensive to put it into the newspaper. Um, RIP um, was a wonderful invention, however, put the... Um, put it together uh, where now a notice you wouldn't, couldn't possibly afford in a newspaper where you give grandchildren's names and great-grandchildren's names and maybe where the person worked. And everybody, all families now want to use RIP. And uh, despite what we're saying about, the, the, about religion and all the rest of it, people still have respect for their dead. And they still want to mourn their dead. Uh, as far as the um, Protestant and Catholic owners are concerned, as many we, we sometimes would have more Catholics than Protestants at a Protestant owners, so that lot well, of those religious differences are, are sort of gone.
2: Eamon, can you talk to me about your vision for Waterford Treasures and do you hope that people will, will, when they visit the Irish Wake Museum, they will also uh, visit some of the other, I uh, might mu- go into the Bishop's Palace, for example, or uh, some of the other uh, great uh, museums that you have there, or do you want people to focus on uh, and target one of them at a time?
3: Uh, Patrick, well, we'd love people to come to Waterford, maybe spend a day or two wandering around the historic city.
2: And tell us about your own remarkable career, because you've given so much to Waterford Treasures, and you've given so much in terms of your own input to to the design and creation of all of these wonderful historical treasures. Uh, you will now be retiring after thirty two years of service.
3: That's that's right. I retire at the end of the month, but I'll probably take a few days off after this museum opens. Look, at it. it was a great privilege for me to work in in, in this city. I've been working here for thirty two years, and. I, I would just have to say that it was a privileged work for Waterford Council. Um, at no time did anyone ever stop me from doing anything. And any time I needed a building, or we acquired a building, Mary Creakley here, who looks after the acquiring of buildings, in fact acquired the the building that the Irish Museum of uh, the, the Wake Museum is in. And um, it, it's been it's been a roller coaster of a career for me, and I've worked with the most marvellous and hardworking, committed people. I think, on the island, and I could stand over that. And look at, I kind of see myself as, as the conductor. I, I I didn't write the script. History has written the script, and we just we just show it. Between us all, we we work together to, to bring it to life and to bring it to the public, and as I said, we started restoring Reginald's Tower. We moved up through the Viking Triangle, and the Museum of Death, I suppose, and the Wake is a nice one. Reginald's Tower talks about the birth of the city, and the Museum of the Irish Wake is talking about attitudes to death and rituals about death and customs to do with death. So it's a nice scene to round off your career on.
2: And I was just wondering, do you think that there's a possibility that a younger generation in Ireland, and perhaps uh, any visitor coming from outside of the island, won't actually know what an Irish wake is and that therefore uh, you might have to do a little bit of explaining to them uh, what this whole concept is before they actually uh, understand what you're doing in the museum?
3: I I think people do get it. You know, if if you Google the Irish wake, you know, there's a lot on it and certainly the, the North American market of people of Irish origin or Irish heritage will know what wake is. Probably a little bit more difficult in European visitors, but we have obviously been working there and we've had the doors open over the last few weeks and we've had we run really excellent guided tours of the Viking training called the Epic Tour. And I would the number of people who've had to say, sorry, you can't come in, because um, we're not open yet, uh, is, is unbelievable. And they're taking photographs of the outside of the building and with this bit, that silver plaque I spoke about from 1704, the, the plaque that was intended to go on a coffin, that's been photographed. There's a joint version of that outside. There's a, a man that looks from a cadaver's tomb. As you enter the building so the public can see that if the door is open and they're all anxious to come in and they're all saying, oh God, I'll come back again to visit Waterford just to see this museum. I think people are curious about this and they, they want to know about these things.
2: And Rosemary, I think it would have been very easy to design a museum experience that would have been very dark and heavy, uh, given that it does deal with such weighty topics to do with death and how how people are remembered afterwards and so on. But I think there's very hopeful elements as well and bits that uh, will kind of... Uh, encourage people and inspire people as they go around the museum, because it's also a celebration of life as much as it is about uh, very heavy topics like infant mortality.
0: Yes, I mean that's where you know, you know, you can imagine we had many discussions um, as the research progressed and as we amassed objects, and um, that was something we had to face. And um, we, you know, we've said we said to you, we we at ultimately. This is a universal theme. Um, Memento mori. Um, we will all go. We will all pass away. We we need to we, to celebrate our every moment. Carpe diem. All the all all the cliches. All the all the Latin phrases. All the wonderful wonderful wisdom of poetry and and uh, the classics. Um, we've 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 gone through them all and we've 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 honed and you know distilled what we have.
2: And Eamon, uh, congratulations on this newest addition then to to Waterford Treasures and the whole range of experiences that are there. But I'll leave the final word for you about the Irish Wake Museum. It's something that tells an important part of our own history, but I think it also is a very powerful message for us today in the present.
3: It is indeed. Yeah, it's a big part of our very intangible heritage. It's a part of what we are as Irish people and how we live our lives and how we relate to each other and how we as a community work together. And I think to look at the history of that big part of our heritage is important. And I, I hope we've done it credit, and I hope we've done credit to all the people who have gone before us who have died and have and have been celebrated. And all. hopefully we'll all be celebrated in some way, and hopefully we'll all make a contribution to society because that is the best way to have a fulfilling life, to make, to contribute. And of course, the most important thing of all is for people to love and to be loved and to respect the people around them. And I suppose if you have a good life and people can say that when you've passed away, I think that's wonderful. And if we can maybe make people concentrate on those important things in life,
2: that'd be good. Well I think that's a wonderful message To end tonight's show on My thanks to Eamon Macanini The Director of Waterford Treasures Museum My thanks also to Rosemary Ryan Creator at Waterford Treasures Museum Who's also been an integral part of the museum Since the 1990s Donico Calicon joined us Another creator at Waterford Treasures Museum And an expert on the 19th and 20th centuries And also my thanks to John Thompson Of Thompson Funeral Homes Who's also the former President And the founder of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors Well that does bring us to the end of an another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Maraisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Well, we've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.